The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So these people here are some folks very beloved to my wife and myself. These are our friends Steve and Lauren, and that is their newborn daughter, Charlotte. And this was at a really important day in their life this past week when Charlotte came home with them for the first time. Because you see, Charlotte was born uh, a month premature. And while her life was never imperiled, it was clear she would need some pretty top-notch medical care to help her grow and thrive. And so she spent the first month of her life in the newborn ICU, the NICU, as it's sometimes called. Teresa and I, my wife and I, were the first two people who weren't her parents and were medical professionals to meet her in this world. We're very honored. And when I went to see her about a week or so ago, now when you go in the NICU, you really got to scrub down everything. And they're pretty explicit, the medical staff are. If you're not the parent's child, you can't touch the baby. You can't hold the baby. Don't get close to the baby. But Stephen Lawrence said, you can touch her. <laughs> he said, just, just, just touch her nose. I have never enjoyed touching another person's nose as much as I enjoyed touching Charlotte's nose. And now she's doing well and she's thriving and she's healthy and she's eating and she's going home with them. And so keep this in mind now. When Steve posted this this past week, I'm about to read you on Facebook. He wrote, it took longer than I thought, but I finally finished my spit up, peed and pooped on merit badge. (laughs) He hit the parenting trifecta. And so it's in that spirit that I'd like to remind us that the common word behind our words, humor, humility, humanizing, human and humane. It's all the same Latin word. Humus. As in dirt. As in what is most common in our lives. So today's story for this Stories with Soul series is this one that a lot of you have let me know you already own or you've given it as a gift to those who have newborns. Everybody poops. This is the plot of everybody poops or everyone poops. Everyone poops. That's it. Continues a little bit for about 16 pages or so. Big creatures have big poops. Small creatures have small poops. Some creatures like to poop wherever they are, kind of like our pet rabbits. That's not in the book that I'm just letting you know that Um, some creatures like to poop in one place and hide it from everything. Not like to spread it all around. That's just what it is. Everyone poops. Kids love it. Some adults love it. Some adults don't love it. They think it's base. And maybe you're having this reaction right now. If you are, that's okay. Whatever's coming up, it's coming up base, as in, we don't talk about that kind of stuff. You know, maybe you just want to remember that, you know, you don't poop, you don't live. I mean, right? So there's that basic kind of stuff. So we can think of basic, not as base, as low, as neglected, as negative, but base as in basic, as in common, as in what we all hold in common if we're going to live. And so rather than shame, you know, this is something we don't talk about. I understand we want to, you know, keep distance from our waste, but without our waste, there's no us. So without shame, maybe one reaction. There's another bathroom humor, which I've engaged in already. And yeah, there is me, the part of me that is still significantly a 12-year-old boy. 
So the fact that I get to preach about pooping makes me really happy. So beyond shame, however, and beyond bathroom humor or bathroom theology, there's also insight, even some insight into the holiness of our lives. And that holiness not being far away and far flung, but the holiness of right here and right now and what is most basic to us. Sometimes we can all live in our minds, in our thoughts, in our heads so much. Sometimes this is one of the most basic things I offer people as a mindfulness teacher when we're doing yoga is now we don't have to live in our heads for this moment. Let's live in the body. Sometimes I even say, you know, we're doing just a basic pose of lifting the head up. Let the head come up last. Don't bring the head up too quickly. Sometimes it's so easy to live in our heads, live in our thoughts, get disconnected from the body. I remember the wise words of the tradition that comes from what's called the Desert Fathers, the Desert Mothers. These are tradition of monastics who were in Egypt the first few centuries after the time of Jesus. And they were really cautioning against the kind of high and mighty spirituality. Theirs was much more basic, much more down to earth. And they said, if you see someone going up to heaven on his own will, grab him and pull him back down to earth. This is what a basic theology is all about. Remembering our commonality kind of like a universalism from the ground up, not a universalism of sometimes our most noble aspirations, but the universalism of all we hold in common and the universalism of having a common heritage as humans and a common destiny as human beings. This is why I like this little book, Everyone Poops. Because it kind of reminds me of that other phrase. You know, sometimes we think of high and mighty folks, folks more powerful, and we might remind ourselves, well, they just put on their you know, pants one leg at a time. Yeah, that's all right. That's not earthy enough. So yes, I poop, and you poop, and they poop, and everyone poops. Next time you have to remind yourself about how much we have in common, maybe you can just say that to yourself. And I know that, yeah, there's things, quote unquote, that traditionally we don't talk about in church. But, you know, we've already talked about sex and we talk about addiction here and we talk about shame and we talk about vulnerability. So today we're just going to add pooping to the list. (laughs) Because it's not that we talk about things that are forbidden just because we love the thrill of transgression, although I do. (laughs) It's actually something deeper, which is that our mission to be a community charged full with the charge of the soul. These wonderful words from Walt Whitman, perhaps America's greatest poet of the spiritual life. He chose the word soul there, not spirit. I have nothing against the word spirit. It's a beautiful word. It means breath in so many different traditions. And yet sometimes when people talk about spirit, I picture spirit as like those affirmational, uh, too feel good, too uh, weirdly sugary. Because sometimes I see it on like the posters in the dentist's office. I think of spirit like spirit with wings. Ah, let's all just have spirit and fly away and get above our lives. And it's ah, spirit. But soul soul i like as a definition of actually where spirit meets body that soul is earthy soul is not otherworldly it's this worldly and right now and right here and in fact has a unifying even healing quality in our lives i know understanding body and embodiment and soulfulness has been profoundly healing for me because for many years as someone who struggled and can continue to struggle with anxiety disorder 
I was walking around as kind of a Cartesian dualism. And if you remember Descartes, I think, therefore I am. The philosophical basis of that is that Descartes didn't trust anything except the mind. This is a philosophical idea, but ideas have consequences. And one of the consequences of what's called the Cartesian dualism is that so many Western traditions degrade the body, degrade those who are associated with the body. It's a profoundly harmful teaching. And as someone who had to deal with a body that sometimes felt like it was always going to fail him and sometimes did fail me or made me very anxious, I spent so much time in my head, which ultimately did nothing to heal me. Did nothing to get me back in touch with the fact that having with a body, nothing wrong or fallen or negative. And so overcoming this split, not just within ourselves, but within our society, is profoundly important. See, because sometimes the way that the dualism works is that we say only certain bodies, only certain bodies of a certain age that look a certain way and can do certain things are the kinds of bodies that count. And then the flip side of that idolatry, because that's what it is, it's idolatry. And idolatry always brings harmfulness in its wake. The flip side of that idolatry is shame. My body doesn't do that. My body doesn't look like that. My body can't do that. My body isn't capable of that. So my body must be less than. We do not learn compassion for ourselves or for other people with abstraction. Compassion is always embodied. It is about growing the heart by growing our connections with the body. You see, if we could share the truth and see the truth of this basic elemental stuff that unites all our lives, I actually believe we'd be so much kinder with ourselves and other people. This is why I have a modest proposal, which has been agreed to by absolutely no one, but I still think it has merit, which I'm going to share with you right now, which is that before Republicans and Democrats sit down with each other, before Palestinians, Israelis, any two groups of people or more set against each other, this is what I believe must be required of them, and this will change our world, that they must be required to change and diaper their opponent's kids and grandkids no one's going to do it doesn't mean it's a bad idea remember how much we have in common remember how we have one common life one common destiny i remember the words of frederick beekner a presbyterian minister and novelist who comes from a doctrinal tradition and he still said That scratch the surface of any doctrine, scratch the surface of any dogma, and eventually what we will see there in its past, even if it's covered up, a face that smiled or eyes that cried. All theology, if it makes any difference, is always embodied. We don't have to cover our tracks. So yes, this is the basis of my universalism. Everyone poops and everyone breathes. And everyone bleeds and everyone dies. And that through this, a more profound and life changing truth emerges. Everyone is beloved. I am not overselling the point I'm about to make by saying it was poop that made me a minister. Here's how I was doing chaplaincy in the summer of 1996 at NYU Medical Center. And I think it was my third week that I was there and really just starting to recognize that I didn't, even if I felt the urge, have to throw up every time I entered a patient's room. I mean, it's really real and it's visceral. And I entered one room and kind of the curtains were drawn and immediately I could smell 
I could smell viscerally. I could smell that the person in this room has or had been having challenges with gastrointestinal issues. And I remember I almost felt like I had one foot out the door. Would you like a visit from a chaplain? And when they said yes, I had to drag myself into that room. The truth of where that smell and where those smells were coming from was a young man, younger than me. I was 26 at the time. I would guess this person was 22, 23, 24. A young man dying of AIDS. I started asking him what he was feeling, what was going on. And he told me his story, and it was a profoundly painful story, a story of being twice rejected, rejected by so many people who knew him from his family growing up, one when he came out as gay, and the second rejection by so many others when it was clear that he was HIV positive and then developed full-blown AIDS. While this young man was talking, what happened next was that he lost control of his bowels. And the stench became overwhelming. And even before the medical personnel arrived in the room with us, he started to clean himself while I was talking and we were talking. And it took every ounce of courage I could possibly muster to keep myself rooted on that floor right there because I wanted to flee. I wanted to run. I wanted to get away. But remember, this young man just told me a story of being twice rejected. I was not going to be someone else who would reject him a third time, who was turning their back on him. And so I did the opposite of what my instincts told me to do. I reached out and I touched his rail-thin shoulder under the mound of blankets that were trying to keep him warm. I could feel his chest rising and falling, struggling with the breath. I could even feel how hot and feverish his body was. And with that struggling for breath, I felt something else. That although he was sick and I was well, that was the same breath in both of our bodies, animating both of our lives. My resistance started to fade. The same life in both of us, even as his was ebbing away. This is why chaplaincy is a requirement for anyone who wishes to minister, because as the Zen tradition tells us, there is just one great matter, and it is the matter of life and death. And so to be able to cultivate intimacy with life and death is to be able to enter the stream of truly caring for and with other people. And this is what I saw in my chaplaincy. Me, who had only ever experienced death as something traumatizing, or something that I distanced myself from. I got to experience, not with that young man. He lived long enough to see me off of his rotation. It was another, uh, another uh, unit in the hospital. It was an older man. An older man who had lived, yes, a long life. His name was Alfred. And what I came to know, not from him, because he was mostly unconscious when I was there at the end of his life, I learned from his wife that he had lived a very, very difficult life, and he had not been, very far from it, the best husband in the world. And so she was struggling with forgiveness, with letting go. And on the last day of Alfred's life, I remember his wife did something. She kind of inserted herself next to him on the hospital bed, next to the railing. And when he was 
you know, having that death rattle, that struggling for the last breath, she, even with all the struggle, all of the emotional ambivalence, took his face in her hands and kept saying over and over again these words. You can rest. You can go now. I love you. You can rest. You can go now. I love you. You can rest. You can go now. I love you. Dying and living and loving are so physical. Held in our hands and held in our hearts. I got the sense of that interaction with Alfred and his wife. A sense of that beautiful line from the Christian scriptures. Come unto me those of you with great burdens and I will give you rest. I think of the traditions that speak of taking refuge. Not somewhere else. Not someplace else. But right here and right now. Taking refuge not as a rejection of the body, but taking refuge with the presence of the beloved and pained body. I got a small sense of this this past uh, year when I was on sabbatical and my wife and I were traveling in Rome. I got a small sense of this taking refuge in a really physical sense in this place. That is Santa Maria del Popolo. It's a beautiful church with... Bernini and Caravaggio and one of the greatest renderings of the moment of Saul slash Paul's uh, redemption conversion in the New Testament. But that's not what gave me refuge. What gave me refuge was this. Remember, I've got a lifetime and experience so far of being really anxious, particularly around things in the body. And this was like a hot day. And you see it. It is that sunbaked. It's a Mediterranean sunbake. And I'm baking there. And we arrived there after walking all around Rome, this beautiful city. And I had too much to eat for lunch. And the church isn't open. So we just sat there on those steps baking. And I can feel all the anxiety rising in my body. I can see the thoughts start. I can see, damn it, I'm going to have an anxiety attack. It's in Rome. I don't want to do this. And then the doors open to the church. And I entered that space. And we entered that space of that cool Ancient church. I was able to take a breath and calm the body down just a little bit and receive that great art. But here's the thing. It wasn't the art that gave me the refuge. It's just the ability to be what was there and to be received by that cool, ancient air. You know? What's another word for everyone poops? Relief. (laughs) Refuge. It all comes back to the basic stuff. It all comes back to the basic stuff like this basic stuff, like this wonderful teaching, challenging teaching. The five remembrances rendered by Thich Nhat Hanh, but an ancient Buddhist teaching. The Buddha taught these directly. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. By the way, the first three on that list, those are all the things that the Buddha's dad, 
no doubt motivated by the best of instincts to protect his son, wanted to hide from his son. (laughs) And those are all the things that the Buddha had to come into contact with to enlighten himself and to be enlightened and to awaken. It's like Ash Wednesday. From dust we come to dust we return. Dust thou art. I have a friend who emerges out of a more earth-based tradition. I love the way she says it's true. And let's also remember we are stardust as well. There's nothing bad about being dust. We are the stuff of the universe common to each and every one of us. When we traverse this path of the basic, never letting go of the ground, we remember as my friends with the newborn know, and as the old and the young dying know, that we traverse this distance of the human journey from birth to death, what we're also doing is mapping the full distance and depth of the human heart with the dirt, the mess, the waste, the want, all of it, leaving none of it out, we awaken. I had an experience of this this past week that I want to conclude with that my wife didn't even know about until she heard it at 9.30, and then she let me know more about it afterward. I was driving home after our mindfulness group, heart opening. Again, mindfulness is not about being in the head. It's about opening up our awareness, that loving awareness, however we experience it, in which we can take refuge, in which we can experience that sense of relief and profound connection. And I was driving home on my normal route, and part of it takes me along these kind of winding beautiful nature roads and i don't know if i was too much in the reverie of the moment but i took one of those turns a little too quickly and it's very very narrow and i strayed just a little bit over those double yellow lines and because it was a blind turn i didn't quite see and the other person didn't see that they came around that turn just a little too quickly and they strayed across the double yellow lines and at the last minute we swerved and did not hit each other I felt that in my gut. (laughs) That was a feeling in the body right there. And where my thoughts opened up to in the next moment was wondering what would have happened if the cars would have hit. Thinking about my own death. Not, as Brene Brown sometimes warns, what she calls foreboding joy, which is we have a happy thought, and we immediately follow up in the next thing by, oh my God, the other shoe's going to drop and it's all going to go to crap. No, it wasn't that. It was just a moment of profound, intense vulnerability. What the band just sang about how fragile we are, listening to that jolt in the body, and I mean this in a non-egocentric way, thinking about my last moments of all the people I would miss and all the people who would miss me and all the people I loved and all the people who loved me. And in that moment, I said my heart opened up after the mindfulness practice, but my heart really opened up there. Not out of fear, but out of connection. How much I love, how much I am loved, and how that is a promise for all of us. I witnessed that sadness, and yeah, because I knew I was preaching about this, the thought that came to mind was this. Everyone poops, and everyone cries, and everyone bleeds, and everyone loves. Because the truth is that love, real love, is not written in sonnets or gifts or stuffed animals. Love is written in 4 a.m. feedings, or as my friends now know, 4 a.m. cleanings. (laughs) Love is written in ER visits. And sitting by the bedside of someone we know who is suffering. 
Love is written on, with, for, by the body. And yes, the soul. But it never escapes. It does not seek to get beyond the body. Love is written here, my friends. It is written on your hearts and in your bodies. May you love today. May that love be real. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Even before the prayer of words, may we first remember the breath. Remember the body. And all the functions of the body. The ones we love, the ones we love less. May we recognize that the holiness is baked into these things. God's own being is baked into these things. Because ultimately to separate anything out is to negate our lives. May instead we practice an open-hearted, open-souled, full-on, long-loving look at the real. And through this, deepen the trajectory, the ever-present, eternal trajectory of becoming the beloved that we already are. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.